Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. It's not exactly a secret that The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gay rights haven't gone hand-in-hand historically. If you go to the official website for the LDS Church right now, you can read the official stance of the Church at the time of this recording. That same-sex attraction itself is not wrong but it is a challenge to be overcome and that acting on those feelings is a sin. If people who quote-unquote struggle with same-sex attraction violate the standards of the church, then they are subject to discipline, including disfellowship, or for those who refuse to repent, excommunication, which is a total severance from the bonds of their community and faith. The church emphasizes the importance of marriage and family as absolutely essential for human happiness and salvation after this life, and yet it unequivocally prohibits marriage and family for gay people, condemning them to a life of celibacy and solitude. And the official church website uses language such as transgression, temptation, wickedness, infirmity, and sin— to describe same-sex attraction. Beloved and revered church leaders continue to break the hearts of gay members and their families with sermons emphasizing their exclusion and alienation from the fold. Is it any wonder, then, that so many queer LDS youth are at high risk of suicide? Some discriminatory policies have changed over time. For example, the church no longer teaches that same-sex attraction can be cured, and it no longer requires children of same-sex couples to denounce their parents in order to be baptized, as it did from 2015 until 2019. Groups like the Black Menaces, Lift and Love, Mama Dragons, Mormons Building Bridges, Encircle, and other groups fight to protect and support queer Mormons. And more everyday members of the church than ever before are speaking up for themselves and their queer friends and family members with love and courage. My own nieces and nephews and many of my friends' kids are so much more aware and so much more loving than my generation was. And I want to thank and honor every single one of those brave souls who have worked so hard to change the culture and even the doctrine toward love. These courageous people have too often been subjected to social ostracism and sometimes, as we heard about on the episode from Bob Reese, They've been subjected to church discipline. I imagine these courageous souls trying to break down the door of a fortress by using their own heads as battering rams. In the cases when the church actually does change for the better and some of the doors do come down, the church doesn't acknowledge the work of the bruised and bloody activists who helped to make those changes. It is lonely, scary work to speak out about LGBTQ rights in the LDS church. And that's why I so admire our guests today. Later in the episode, we'll hear from writer, filmmaker, and proud parent of a gay child, Autumn McAlpin, who will be performing some of her personal poetry about raising a queer son in the LDS Church. But first, I'd like to welcome Colette Dalton, a listener who reached out to us wanting to share her story about compulsory heteronormativity, how patriarchy further oppresses women who happen to not be straight, 
and the painful dissonance that many queer people endure due to their cultures and their faiths. We're so grateful and happy to share her story today. Colette Dalton's pronouns are she and her. She's a therapist in Utah, and she specializes in working with people around faith transitions and sexuality. She co-hosts a podcast called Called to Queer, which holds space for queer Mormon women, gender queer, and intersex folks. In her free time, she enjoys practicing Pilates, reading, and listening to way too many podcasts. Welcome, Colette Dalton. I gently slid the ring onto my left ring finger and stared at the diamond now sparkling on my hand. I then looked up into her eyes, trying to see if she was thinking what I was thinking. It all started out innocently enough. After I finished my grad school training to become a therapist, I interviewed for a job in a new city. They offered me the position, I accepted, and just like that, I was moving to a city I'd never been before. My new employer wanted me to start in only a few weeks, so I was scrambling to figure out where to live. The idea of getting my own apartment felt a bit too scary and new coming right out of grad school and constantly being surrounded by roommates. I also liked the idea of saving some money while living with someone else and not being responsible for the entire rent on my own. I ended up connecting with a woman through the church I attended. She had divorced about six months before and was looking to have a roommate as she was realizing that living alone wasn't the best thing for her extroverted nature. I moved in right as she was leaving town for a long weekend. When she came back after her trip, it took some adjusting. She'd been living by herself for a few months, and I hadn't ever known anyone who was so open about their mental health, at least not anyone who wasn't a client. She'd try to get close to me by oversharing about her history of depression and issues with her previous marriage. I'd back away confused by what to do with the information. But after several months, we settled into a routine. I felt like I'd lucked out with having her as a roommate, and we were becoming close friends. We spent time in the evenings together laughing over the TV show Castle. We went to church activities together, and she'd often lead the charge with anything extroverted as I sat back and watched and laughed. She showed me around the town as she had lived there her whole life, and I loved trying all the new-to-me places and restaurants. I slowly opened up about my own issues with depression, and I felt so safe and understood. However, a bit after a year of living together, I could tell something was going on with her. She was acting strange and distant and seemed depressed, but she refused to tell me what was on her mind. One night, as we were talking in my room, I finally got it out of her. You know how I never say I love you back? She asked. Yeah, I replied. It's because it means something different to me than it does for you. Okay, I questioned, and then it hit me what she meant. She liked me. Like, like liked me. Like, had a crush on me. I had no idea she was interested in women, as she'd only ever talked about men. It only took a couple of seconds for me to process, but then I responded. Oh, 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 of course that's okay. That means a lot that you'd think of me that way. I don't see you that way, but this doesn't change our friendship at all, I reassured her. You mean a lot to me, and I care about you. But she ran out of the room in shame. As a few weeks passed, I realized that her feelings towards me were more reciprocated than she thought. I remember driving home with her one day, and Mary Lambert's She Keeps Me Warm came on the radio. I quickly changed the channel, my face turning red. She gave me a weird look, but let it go. It wasn't until we were cuddling one night, and I held on to her a bit too long as she was trying to leave, that it clicked for her. You feel it too, don't you? She asked, whispering in my ear. I tried to deny it, but I did feel it. 
which was confusing because I was straight. The confusion continued as we kept living together, acting like a couple in private, but being very careful in public. I could lose my job for being in a relationship with a woman, and there'd be consequences for both of us with our church if people found out we were dating. But dating is exactly what we were doing, and it felt so right. I loved cuddling with her at the end of a long day as we watched a TV show together. It was so fun doing random adventures around the city and going on vacation to Lake Tahoe over the 4th of July, where she held me as we watched fireworks over the lake and were able to act more of a couple in public without fear of reprisal. Even going grocery shopping and doing household chores together made me happy. And after a few months of this, there we were, with the ring. No, this wasn't a proposal. We'd been talking about her previous marriage, and I had asked to see her wedding ring. We'd been dating for several months at this point, and I was so confused. Why did I see her as more than a friend and a roommate? Why was I even thinking about marrying her, even though I was straight? Why was I thinking about marriage when it wasn't legal throughout the U.S. to have two women marry each other? And why did trying on her old wedding ring make me wish she was actually proposing to me instead of showing me a relic of her past life? Soon after that, we took a trip to Seattle. By this point, we had decided to stop dating and to try to live our religion more faithfully. She was moving out of the state to supposedly live closer to family, but it was really to get away from me. We kept trying to not date, but it was impossible for us to stop when we were living together. Because of this, we'd invited a friend along to chaperone us, though the friend didn't know she was doing that as we'd been so private and quiet about our relationship. We figured we wouldn't be able to act like a couple with this friend around. On the first full day of our trip, we ran through the rain to the Smith Tower, a building which is the oldest skyscraper in the city. We took the elevator to the top and took turns sitting in the wishing chair. The legend around the wishing chair says that any single woman who truly desires to get married and sits in the chair will be married within the year. As I sat in the chair, my mind felt very confused. I did want to get married, but I wanted to marry her. Did that wish count? Did the wishing chair care about the gender of the partner? Would it only work if I desired to marry a man? Any man? I didn't get married within the next year, and it took several more years of pain and confusion to realize that I wasn't actually straight. Some people smarter than me might have figured it out sooner, but at the same time, the patriarchy dramatically interfered with my ability to realize that I was queer. Being in a patriarchal system, compulsory heteronormativity was enforced. Liking anyone who wasn't a man simply wasn't an option. I was on a path with the destination of marriage to a man. No need to look at any other options because there weren't any. And going along with that, my sexuality didn't belong to me, ever. It belonged to God, and then once I got married, it belonged to my husband. Even thinking about being a sexual being wasn't allowed. No watching pornography, no masturbation, no sexual fantasies, and even dating was off limits until I was 16. Plus, I was counseled to not French kiss anyone until it was my husband. So how was I supposed to know that I was attracted to women if I was supposed to not be sexually attracted to anyone? Now seeing more of how patriarchy is embedded everywhere in our culture, I can't help but wonder if I would have discovered my sexuality earlier if it hadn't been for the patriarchy, if it hadn't been for the heteronormativity that is everywhere in our culture. Would I have been allowed to have crushes on girls when I was younger? Would I have tried so hard to keep going on dates with men even when I wasn't feeling it? Would I have cared so much about what I looked like and kept wearing makeup even though it was a pain and took up time I'd rather be sleeping? Would I have had the near-constant thoughts of wishing I was dead because being dead and supposedly straight would have been better than being alive and gay? I mourn for the me that could have been if it would have been possible to live in a world devoid of the patriarchy. 
I imagine being an eight-year-old that loved her body instead of thinking it wasn't good enough because of having to be aware of the male gaze. I imagine being a 12-year-old that could have had a crush on her female classmate, or a 17-year-old that could have had her first kiss with a woman. I could have been a 24-year-old that didn't feel any angst about wanting a woman to marry her, or a 25-year-old that wouldn't have been so confused sitting in the wishing chair. I could have been a 28-year-old that wasn't devastated when she realized she was actually gay and who would have just trusted herself instead of listening to what the world around her said about her sexuality and her future. And I mourn especially for the possibility of being a 30-year-old that would have loved life instead of spending so much of her energy trying to keep herself alive in a very broken mind and system. It's a weird and profound, yet ambiguous, loss. I don't know who I would have and could have been without the patriarchy. It's hard to imagine having being queer be so normalized that I never would have had to come out because it wouldn't have been an issue. I'm so amazed by seeing teens and kids coming out so young and not being afraid, of seeing them being celebrated by their families instead of hidden. But the reality is that that wasn't my reality, but I want it to be the reality for others. And that's one of the many reasons why I want to continue to help in the cause of breaking down patriarchy. Up next, we're going to hear from Autumn McAlpin, who will be performing some of her poetry, which explores a mother's love for her child as they come out of the closet, come of age, and confront a culture of homophobia. Autumn McAlpin's pronouns are she, her. She is a writer, filmmaker, and dedicated voice of advocacy and equality for our LGBTQIA population, in particular in the LDS space. Autumn pens the weekly LGBTQIA family profile stories at liftandlove.org and is also an active supporter and fundraiser for Encircle, which provides safe spaces, friendship circles, classes, and subsidized therapy to LGBTQIA youth. As a storyteller, Autumn believes in the power of personal experience to change hearts and minds. Since her 18-year-old son, Gavin, recently came out as gay, she spent the past year writing a compilation of free verse to catalog and process their family's experience. Autumn will now read excerpts from her book, But Jesus, A Conversation. Welcome, Autumn McAlpin. In Search of Masculine, Manly Men From our premortal life, we were directed into a physical body. There is no mismatching of bodies and spirits. Boys are to become men, masculine, manly men, ultimately to become husbands and fathers. There is a falsehood that some are born with an attraction to their own kind, with nothing they can do about it. They are just that way and can only yield to those desires. That is a malicious and destructive lie. No one is locked into that kind of life. Elder Boyd K. Packer, 1976. Things they said. Did you always know? See your little guy out there jumping on the trampoline in a princess dress? All I can say is don't ask, don't tell. Arguably the brightest student I've ever had, but at recess, he struggles to connect. Taekwondo, sign him up for a real sport. He really just prefers Legos. Tell them to ask Mia or Zoe. They need dates. Have you always known? Not everyone's into team sports. Sometimes they're just late bloomers. My kid hated dances too. Jenna or Abby? 
Promise me when I go off to college, you'll figure him out. There's got to be someone he'd want to go out with. You know why he's depressed, right? He's gay. I did my dissertation on homosexuality. I know these things. What kind of high school junior wants to spend his spring break with his mom painting tulips in the Netherlands? Promise me when I'm on my mission, you'll figure him out. I've known it since he was three. I never said anything because sometimes, well, I'm, I'm wrong. All I can say is God makes them the way they come and God don't make no mistakes. I'd strongly encourage him to wait until he graduates to fully come out. High schoolers can be brutal. You knew, right? Things I said. A perfect baby, perfect child. Never screamed, never cried, never did a thing wrong in his life. Mama's boy, teacher's pet, school-wide standout, future prophet? Things he did. How he tried, how he tried, how he tried so hard to hide. He sat up front, all smiles and nods, and beat himself with unseen rods. Not for what he said or done, but what he feared he might become. If he stopped the pleading smiles, the nodding, blending, self-denial, the retching, sobbing floods, the writhing, all from a youth of constant hiding. Masculine, manly men. We're walking along Fisherman's Wharf. It's summer, irony's coldest season. My husband and younger son lead our trapes through the crowds, the two girls in the middle. As always, amid the hills and gusts, I fall behind. Neuropathy has a way of doing that. Hills and gusts have a way of making it worse. My drop foot intensifies. My left side drags. My body entering shutdown mode. When, like an anchor, I feel the warm strength of my oldest son. He wraps his jacket around my shoulders. His gentle cradle and outstretched arms support, push, almost pull me up the hill. He says nothing. He is 14. The manly men are up ahead, lost in the crowd. My husband, who brags he dated probably a hundred girls before we married. My charming son, who convinced Heidi Klum to deliver his first kiss on his cheek. But it is this son who notices his mother struggling to walk. This son, who was born that way. He read that. The person who teaches or condones the crimes for which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. We have coined a softer name for them that came from old. We now speak of homosexuality. J. Reuben Clark, Jr., 1952. They, homosexuals, should be excommunicated without any doubt. The homosexual has no right to membership in the church. I said I think they should be dealt with immediately if they are guilty. President David O. McKay, 1965. Let this individual repent of his perversion, force himself to return to normal pursuits and interests and actions and friendships with the opposite sex, and this normal pattern can become natural again. President Spencer W. Kimball, 1969. Nor do we intend to admit to this campus any homosexuals. If any of you have this tendency, may I suggest you leave the university immediately. We do not want others on this campus to be contaminated by your presence. Ernest Wilkinson, president of BYU, 1965. He read all that years before you did. Don't tell him how to feel. But Jesus said, love everyone, treat them kindly too. When your heart is filled with love, others will love you. Let's break it down. So he didn't choose this. True. He can't change it. We believe that. Can't fix it. Not really. Can't make it go away. I'd imagine not. 
You don't encourage a mixed orientation marriage. We acknowledge that might not be best. And eternal marriage, the new and everlasting covenant. Yes. The dream, desire, mandate, epitome, goal. Absolutely. What is preached from every pulpit in every class? That is the plan. And faith, hope, charity? Cornerstones, pillars, foundations. Where is his? Is your marriage and family just one tiny part of you? Or is it everything that you're told to pursue from the moment you meet that first pew? What do you do when you are the fine print, the exception, the asterisk? Where do you sit? Not sure anymore about Jesus, he says, at Christmas, and it breaks your heart. Did you push too hard or not enough? A compass is nice, but sometimes you crave a manual. He joined family church, but stopped once it streamed online from pulpits and people who before called him unnatural or worse. You only begged once for him to join an assembly. You were the speaker. The topic was service. It seemed safe enough, and it was, until the keynote from Salt Lake took to the pulpit and reminded him the church, the church, was the only way, the one way. And now, at Christmas, he doesn't want to listen to Silent Night. But he still closes his eyes and bows his head when you pray. But has he read this? Marriage should not be viewed as a way to solve homosexual problems. The lives of others should not be damaged by entering a marriage where such concerns exist. Encouraging members to cultivate heterosexual feelings as a way to resolve homosexual problems generally leads them to frustration and discouragement. President Gordon B. Hinckley, 1992. Wait, so does that mean? No, the doctrine doesn't change. What about when black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse? Brigham Young. Black skin reflects unrighteous actions in premortal life. Bruce R. McConkie. Mixed race marriages are a sin. Mark E. Peterson, 1954. Became this. Church leaders now unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. The LDS Church website, present day. One explanation. I don't know that it's possible to distinguish between policy and doctrine in a church that believes in continuing revelation and sustains its leader as a prophet. I'm not sure I could justify the difference in doctrine and policy in the fact that before 1978, a person could not hold the priesthood, and after 1978, they could hold the priesthood. President Dallin H. Oaks. Excerpts from a conversation with the general authority. It's kind of like coffee, 99% of the world's favorite drink, a staple, a ritual. How's that? I didn't grow up drinking it, never even wanted to. Obedience. Perhaps. Also, I never really liked the taste. But that's the thing. 99% of the world did grow up drinking it, loving it, can't even fathom giving it up. Sure. And this 99% of the world won't listen to why they might or should give it up. It's about obedience. For them or for us. Precept by precept. But faith precedes obedience. True. When the missionaries knock, they won't even open the door because of the coffee. When they hear the words LDS, Mormon, they think coffee, sacrifice, before they've ever heard of the law of sacrifice. It's a code of health. But does it keep you from heaven? Of course not. But it keeps them from opening the door, from Christ's church intended for all. A beverage, not too different from your Diet Coke or Red Bull, perhaps. So back to the plan of happiness, eternal marriage, eternal families, much more important. You love yours? They're my everything, as they should be. And marriage, ordained to be between one man, one woman. Doctrine, unchanging, God's plan. 
for all but 3 to 13% of God's children, pending which survey. For all, your son's identity is not gay. His identity is a child of God. Some may feel it's not for them because currently it's not. This 3 to 13%, it's a higher law. And what about the 3 to 13% brought up in this quest for obedience, implanted since sunbeams with a sunny plan that crumbles when they realize their biology doesn't fit the plan, that the end goal is unachievable in this life, and there's no surety about what comes next? It makes sense the truest of believers might see suicide as the safest way out. There are things we do not yet fully understand. But are we asking? I do not tell God what to do. But are we asking? The doctrine doesn't change. Hasn't it, though? What about polygamy? How does their marriage attack yours or mine? It doesn't, per se. Then why not err on the side of caution in their favor? Why not let people keep their coffee if God's plan is for everyone? The Only Way Everyone raved about the keynote from Salt Lake. Everyone but your son, who afterward wanted to drive off a bridge to mute the reverberating words but instead went and met up with a friend, a girl who won't sit for a keynote from Salt Lake, a girl who has never been to Salt Lake. But she smiles with Christ in her eyes every time she enters your space with her coffee. So full of love for everyone. Did he know that keynote when he looked your son in the eye, knowing he was your son because you had just told him, knowing that your son had freshly left the fold because of all the things he'd been told by people at a pulpit, did he have any idea that by telling him that day that the church is the only way that what some hear him really say is that their prescribed lonely path that often leads to dead ends runs parallel to the road that works so well for him and his friends until it doesn't, until it detours, at a bridge, with a gun, too many pills, a rope, where is their hope? Active or activist, what are you now? And where does your husband lean? He circles your son, a single-minded fortress, while you try to change the world for all the upcoming Gavins. You write weekly family profiles online, how to lift, how to love, liftandlove.org, meeting hundreds of families just like yours. Their pearls resonate. You have to affirm yourself and believe in your own goodness. It's more important to avoid breaking a person than to avoid breaking a rule. I plead that you be more understanding to people who experience and struggle with things that you may not experience and understand for yourself. There are too many people and too great of people to have this in their lives for no reason. I want to stick around and be here, the woman with the rainbow pin, the one who raises her hand and reminds people that things have changed. Leaders don't say those things anymore. It just makes you mad when you're in a church that works so well for you, but there's no place for your child. When we don't make space for our LGBTQ kids, we're also not making space for the people who love them. To ask another human being to live their whole life without a companion when you have one, that's just cruel. I don't believe in a Heavenly Father who would make you the way you are, then punish you for being that way. We were given this family on earth for a reason, and if we turn our backs on our children because they are doing something we don't like, then we just failed our test here on earth. I separate the church from the gospel. My gay children are light seekers and bearers and do it a lot better than a lot of Christians. This is a blessing, not a trial. 
the trial is seeing them in pain. We are the opposite of lazy learners or lax disciples. True eternal success won't be because of a temple recommend. It will be because we loved unconditionally. We as a church have failed our LGBTQ members. We have a lot of work to do. We need to listen to and understand them, and we need to let them know they belong. We don't belong here. We don't belong anywhere, and so we mourn alone. There is no plan in place for families like ours. Let's push for further light and knowledge regarding our LGBTQ family members. Whiplash. We need to listen to and understand what our LGBT brothers and sisters are feeling and experiencing. Certainly, we must do better than we have done in the past so that all members feel they have a spiritual home where their brothers and sisters love them and where they have a place to worship and serve the Lord. Elder M. Russell Ballard, 2017. Soon after the lifting of the priesthood and temple ban for black people in 1978. Forget everything that I have said or what President Brigham Young or whomsoever has said in days past that is contrary to the present revelation. We spoke with a limited understanding and without the light and knowledge that now has come into the world. Elder Bruce R. McConkie. We sometimes don't believe truth or reject it because it would require us to change or admit that we were wrong. Often truth is rejected because it doesn't appear to be consistent with previous experiences. Yes, we do have the fullness of the everlasting gospel, but that does not mean that we know everything. In fact, one principle of the restored gospel is our belief that God will yet reveal many great and important things. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, 2013. God makes them the way they come, and God don't make no mistakes. My father-in-law, Len McAlpin, 2020. Muskets. His first day as a freshman at Berkeley is an adventure. He's awoken by a fire alarm. Someone's burned toast. All are evacuated and will stand outside for two hours in the cold. Half will remain in pajamas for their first day of class. The homeless encampment across the street at People's Park has also chosen this day to stage a protest against the land developer seeking to dismantle their tent city. They block all entrances to campus, including professors from parking. Meanwhile on campus, the vegans protest the distribution of animal products by strewing decapitated stuffed animals around the lawn and pouring fake blood in the fountains. Your son calls you to report on his first day, slightly humored by it all. One week later, you drive your returned missionary daughter to BYU, where the men's hair is as well manicured as the lawns and no beards allowed, or they are barred entry. An apostle known for speaking hope and love has taken his place at a podium and accuses a former valedictorian of commandeering that same podium. But the latter is deemed a nuisance because he dared to share his orientation, where so many scholars before him, including that apostle, have shared charming anecdotes about their kids and gratitude for their spouses. Their orientation represents the standard, so it is okay. Hardly divisive, because they are the norm. The apostle commandeers his faithful warriors to take up figurative musket fire against those, like you, who dare to advocate for those, like your son, whose very presence makes the majority feel under attack. Each school's first week will make headline news. Each university shakes their head at the other. You have delivered these two children into the world, to these schools, one where the ungodly protest for humanity and animals, one where the godly protest against humans like your son. You exhale, knowing at which school your son is safe. He made the right choice. You question it all, everything. A Mother's Prayer 
Heavenly Father, are you really there? And do you hear and answer every mother's prayer? I silently scream, my knuckles now bloody. And I roll over and clasp my compass and rejoice that he is still with us, mine to love, so easy to love. They embody love, and their mothers knew it. They're here to teach us how to love, as Christ did. The outcast, the leper, the Pharisee, the one. Father, forgive us, for we know not what we've done. May they forgive us. We're so thankful to Autumn for sharing her brilliant and moving poetry, and we're so thankful to Colette for her courageous piece as well. We need to make space for queer youth. We need to make space for the people who love them. We need to be the people who love them. Before I go, I'd like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thank you, listeners, for joining us in this work. We're so grateful to have you with us. Please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast, and then pass this episode along to a friend. And of course, join the conversation on our social media. We'd love to hear from you. And be sure to tune in next week when we'll be continuing our Month of Pride celebrations by hearing from two transgender members of the Breaking Down Patriarchy community, author and organizer Dami Shoemaker and the podcast's own Sam Rose Preminger, who will speak to us about breaking gender barriers, discovering their true selves, and the way trans and non-binary people are pushing back against gender oppression. Join us for all of this next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 